I don't know if you're like me, I, I, you know, occasionally I'll find myself um, looking ahead. You know, like you're reading a book and you're really caught into the, into the drama of it, but, but you can't handle the tension, so you look ahead at the end to see if the, your favorite character's still alive or if the hero prevails or, or whatever. Or maybe you're watching a sporting event and you've DVR'd it, and it really is important to you, so you got to know. So you cheat and you look at what the final score is and then you feel so much more relaxed as you're watching that sporting event. You know how it ends and who lives and who dies and whether the, whether the hero prevails and, and the good side wins or whether OJ's found not guilty again. Whatever it is, sometimes it's nice to, to know the end. I have a daughter, daughter Grace, happens to be here this morning. She, she really introduced me to this. She'd get a book, and, and, and she'd go right to the end, read the last few pages, and, and kind of give it a sense of it. And then she said, okay, I'm good with this. Now I'll read the rest of the book. Grace is up here this morning with, uh, with her fiancé, uh, Marty. They're, they're in the back there. I didn't want to cheat you guys because I said that in the first service, and I didn't want anybody to say, well, you didn't say it in the second service. So I just want to, you know, let you know that. This thing about the end, you know, I mean, I mean really, uh, humans are obsessed, it seems, with, with the end and, and predicting the end and what's it going to look like and when's it going to end and all this stuff. And it's, it's going on for a long time. And what do we mean by the end? Well, the theological terms, the word is eschaton or the eschaton meaning the end. Can you say it? Eschaton. Okay, not bad. Better than the first attempt in the first service, but let's try it again. Eschaton. Eschaton. Wow, you guys are all theologians now. That's amazing. The eschaton means the end. That the end of what? The end of, of the world as we know it doesn't mean the end the world's going to end completely and there's nothing going forward. But the, the world as we know it ends. It's, it's kind of the, the end times. And, and this is kind of a, an important part. We're, we're in our four-part intro to Revelations. Last week, Eric looked at... Um, the, the four uh, general ways that Revelation has been interpreted. This week, we're going to look at the eschaton, the end. Next week, John's going to talk about apocalyptic literature. And, and you might be wondering, why are, we, why are we doing this? Can't we just jump into the book? Can't we just open up the text and jump into Revelation? Well, as a couple of people mentioned last week, uh, who read through Revelations in preparation for this series, they read through Revelation and said, how do you make any sense of this thing? And that's part of our challenge. Revelations, really, for uh, hundreds of years, is considered by biblical scholars to be the most challenging, the most difficult New Testament book to interpret. And for that reason, there have been many approaches and and many ideas and and many things that have come out of this book of Revelation. And these challenges have caused many people to shy away from preaching and teaching. On the book, and, and I got to be honest, I was in that camp. I mean, really, when, when John said to the staff, says, I'm thinking that we're going to go to Revelation as a book next, and I said, really? No, I didn't, but I rolled my eyes inside and said inside, really? Don't you know how hard that thing is? Nobody agrees. So uh, I've since repented. And any time we look at Scripture and say, that's too difficult, that's too hard, that's too controversial, we should just shy away from it, we know we're in trouble. All of this is God's Word. 
All of it is from God. All of it has value. All of it should be part of our lives. Just because something's difficult doesn't mean we avoid it. It means we come more humbly to it. And we come with awareness that we may not have all the answers and that we still may come away with parts that we don't understand. And that our view of it may not be the ultimate final word on how we interpret it. Well, back to the end. People in the Christian world have been predicting the eschaton, the end, for, well, seemingly ever. I mean, the first real recorded uh, part we have is back in the Jewish revolt in 60 A.D. And part of the Jewish revolt, the Romans, in putting the revolt down, destroyed the Jewish temple in, in Jerusalem. Gone, never to be rebuilt to this day. And many people saw in that that Jesus came back, and that, that was the, what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about the end times, talking the end of Judaism. And so that, that carried the day a little bit. And in fact, that, today we call that the preterist view, that the, everything that happens in Revelation happened historically in the time of John. Well, the predictions of the eschaton have continued pretty much nonstop since then. If you Google uh, all the predictions, you get page after page after page, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of humans' attempt to try and predict when the end was going to come. As you can imagine, a popular date was around 1,000 because in Revelation 20, you talk about the 1,000-year reign, so they said, okay, Jesus came, so it's 1,000 years. Well, then it didn't happen, and they, oh, well, we were wrong. It should be 1,033 because that's when he died, but now we know he probably didn't die in 33 A.D., but let's not get caught up in those details. And so they went to 1,033, and, well, then it didn't end again. That's the amazing thing. People predict the end, and then they're wrong, and instead of saying, oh, sorry, I'm wrong, they recalculate and go, oh, oh, I had a number off. Now it's this day. Then they're wrong again, and they go, oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm going. If I was, well, first, I don't think I'd ever predict it, but if I was wrong, I'd just kind of humbly say sorry and go away. I mean, interesting fact, you know, come from a financial world. The, the guy that says he predicted the, the kind of the market crash of uh, 08, 07, you know, he predicted it. He predicted one every month for three years before that and has predicted one every quarter since that. So I guess if you predict enough, you may get lucky even though you're wrong 7,000 times. You're right once. You say, hey, see, you could be a weatherman. <laughs> Sorry, we don't have any meteorologists out here, do we? I always hear about when I pick on a group and somebody's there. Um, so these constant predictions, they've, they've continued right up to today. I mean... There was someone at uh, the end of last year. I mean, there might be somebody right now. I'm not aware of it. They're always predicting the end. They are the ones out of billions of people that have figured the code that gets them the position to say, here's when it's going to end. And as they predict the end, what they're doing is they're trying to make Jesus Christ a liar. Because Jesus Christ said in Mark 13, 32, but concerning that day, that's the day of the eschaton, and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, meaning himself, but only the Father. 
And in Acts 1.7, he says, It is not for you, speaking to the disciples, not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's when they ask him, when's this going to happen? He says, you're not going to know. I'm not going to know. And yet, yet we, we as humans get caught up in this. I guess that's part of the fall, wanting to, to be God. So what does that mean? Does that mean we should stop making predictions about the end? Yes. Does that mean we stop caring about the eschaton? No. Now, eschatology is the study of the, say, eschatology. You guys are becoming better theologians every minute. Ology means study of, so like theology, theo is God, study of God. Eschatology, study of the eschaton, the end or end times. Now, many see Revelations as solely an eschatological book, especially from chapters 4 on, but some see all of it. Now, they would be what's called, Eric talks about, the futurists, that all of Revelations is in the future. Now, with all this obsession of eschatology, and there are people that are upset. I mean, I've had people at Timberwood tell me that's all they really care about. They just want to obsess on predictions and and, and prophetic theology and, and all this eschatological stuff. And then there's people over here who, who kind of a little bit, like, who say, really, we can't figure it out, we don't know it, so let's just avoid it, let's not talk about it, let's pretend. Let's just, just make Revelation an appendix to the Bible and just kind of add it at the end. And neither are right. It's not a topic to obsess on, especially on eschatology itself. And it's certainly something we shouldn't avoid. We shouldn't avoid it because the Bible talks about it regularly, not just in Revelations, as we're going to see today, but in many parts of the New Testament. But our eschatology has to be grounded in Jesus Christ. It has to be focused on him. It can't be something in and apart of Jesus that Jesus just plays a minor role in. And that's how some people's eschatology gets. It's all about this predicting the future, and yet Jesus only plays a minor role in their, in their view of things. In fact, Jesus' return, Jesus Christ's returns, has to be the center and the focus of our eschatology. It should be what it's all about. And the fact that Jesus is returning is the one thing that virtually all evangelicals can agree about and about the only thing we can agree about when it comes to eschatology. And what do we know about Jesus' return? Well, first, it's definite. It is going to happen. The Gospels, Paul, Revelation, all of the New Testament speaks that Jesus Christ will return. He has to return. And what do we know about that return? That's going to be personal. John 14, 3 says, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven. He is going to come back personally. Some people saw in the destruction of the temple that Jesus returned through that event. And some people saw in Pentecost that Jesus returned through the sending of the Holy Spirit by Jesus. But we understand that the Bible is clear that he's going to personally return. He's not going to return through some kind of agent or some kind of power. He is going to personally return. 
And it's going to be a bodily return. Acts 1.11, as he's ascending into heaven, an angel comes and, and says to the disciples, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. It's not going to be just a spiritual return. It's going to be a bodily return. He's going to return in his, his glorified body. That's going to be a visible return. Matthew 24, 30, they, that's all the tribes of the earth, in other words, all the people on the earth, will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's a visible return. It's not, some, some people who created this, this idea that, that Jesus is going to mysteriously return and nobody's going to see him and he's just going to take a, a few of the elect and he's going to take them up with him and everybody's going to say, what happened? Where did everybody go? And, and they're not going to see Jesus on that return. That makes good drama, but it's bad biblical theology. It's going to be visible. We're going to know it. We're not going to miss it. In fact, it will be the most shocking event that's going to happen to this earth. His return is going to be triumphant and glorious. Luke 21, 27. Then we will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. First time he came is what? A baby in a manger. Most of the world didn't notice. This time, everybody's going to know. He's going to come in power and glory to rule forever all of creation. This isn't a side note that a few angels on a, are going to be talking to a few shepherds on the side of a hill. This is going to be an event that the whole world will notice. And last, it is unexpected. As we saw earlier, no one knows when. We've been given some events or things that are going to happen, but every time people have tried to apply those events to, to today, to their time, they've been wrong. Now, maybe we're going to be able to tell, and especially after the fact we might be able to tell, but so far we've been unable to predict. And when he returns, it's going to be a surprise. It's going to be a surprise either to most or maybe even to all the world. Most people deny that Jesus Christ is going to come back. In fact, let's say it's fast. Most of the world denies Jesus Christ as the Son of God. But even those that accept that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, many of those live their lives in denial of the truth that Jesus Christ is going to return. And, and there's no way you can read the Bible and miss the fact that he will come back. But many, many are going to be surprised. Any, any discussion of eschatology has to deal with what's called the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Again, Revelation 20. This has been a pivotal point. In fact, for, for many people, this is the the hinge point of how they interpret Revelation. And there's really been three general positions that have been taken over the years. The first is called post-millennialism. Post meaning that it, that it back there, it started back there. Many people saw this as Jesus Christ came and the, and the kingdom of God came, that he initiated that, that he was reigning through the church since his death and the coming of, of the Holy Spirit. So post-millennium. Now that was great because they were thinking what? At a thousand or a thousand thirty-three, what was gonna happen? 
Eschaton, see there, well, didn't happen. Hmm, thought I had that one figured out. That, that understanding of the church, the church being the reign of Christ on earth, hugely popular, went out of favor, and now is really almost unfound in an evangelical world. The second one is premillennialism. In other words, on the other side, we're on this side of the millennial. The millennial reign is ahead of us. Um, real common with futurists, as, as Eric talked about last week. Real common in the evangelical world. That, that the millennial reign will actually be a thousand years and that Jesus Christ will reign on this earth as we generally know it, that he'll reign on this earth for a thousand years. And then the third one is all millennialism. Awe, meaning a not. Or, or. So that thinking is that Jesus Christ comes, but his reign is in the future. It's it's infinite. The, the, the thousand-year reign is symbolic for the fact that Jesus Christ is going to be reigning for eternity as king of all things, Lord of all things, and that it isn't this earth that he's reigning. It's everything, all of existence going forward. There's so much argument about this. In fact, it, it, this, this is a topic that can cause such great dissension amongst the Christian world, which, which I just find tragic. We're talking about a tremendous event, a positive event. If, if God wanted us to know it exactly, he probably would have given us a little more information. We must remember at all times that the Bible, and especially Revelation, is about praising the Lord for what he's done and what's to come. Not sitting there arguing with our brothers and sisters in Christ about whether there's a thousand-year reign literally or it was in the past or whether it's symbolic. Now, now you're probably sitting there and you're, you're thinking, Tom, this is, just, this is just fascinating stuff. I'm on the edge of my seat. Could you go on for another five hours? But with all that, really, what does it matter to me? I mean, and I understand that thinking. I mean, eschatology could be that thing all theologians just argue about, but what does it have to do with me? Miller Derrickson says, the major result of Christ's second coming from the standpoint of individual eschatology is the resurrection. This is the basis for the believer's hope in the face of death. Although death is inevitable, the believer anticipates being delivered from its power. As we say in our statement of faith, we believe in the bodily resurrection of the just and the unjust, the everlasting joy of the saved and the everlasting punishment of the lost. You see, when Jesus Christ comes back, that's going to trigger the resurrection. And the resurrection is of those that have died and those that are currently living. And at that comes the final judgment. The final judgment where it is determined, judged by Jesus Christ, the eternal final state of everyone. The just, those that have been made just in Jesus Christ, made just in the eyes of God through Jesus Christ, are going to spend eternity with God, heaven. Those that are not just, who have not turned to Jesus Christ, have not accepted the forgiveness of sins, and who have stayed under the wrath of God, Eternity without God, hell. 
We know this is going to happen. We may not know when, we don't know how, but we know it's going to happen. Now, we've talked about the, the membership meeting. I, I end up doing most of the times, I do the statement of faith at the membership meeting. We go through our statement of faith, we come to that item, and we talk about the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And, and at the end, everybody's raised in a final judgment in heaven and hell. And invariably, they get a question. Well, if I die tomorrow and the resurrection's 2,000 years from now, don't I, what, what, where am I in those 2,000 years? Don't I die and if I'm in Christ, go to heaven? It's interesting. We don't take a statement on it because the Bible isn't extremely clear on this. But from a theological standpoint, we have what we call the intermediate state. Intermediate between when our earthly existence goes, because we know that body goes in the grave, decays, dead. And when Christ returns and we get our resurrected, glorified body that we go through eternity with, that intermediate period of time, what happens? And again, as I said, the Bible's not extremely clear, but, but we do hold to what's called the intermediate state, meaning we're in a spiritual state, for those of us in Christ, with God. And in that, we don't have a body yet, because that comes with the resurrection, but we are with God. Now, what about those that, that have never accepted Christ and die out in their sins? The Bible speaks even less about what the intermediate state is for them. Whether they have to wait till the final resurrection or there, and there's some terms that are used, some kind of suspended soul sleep state. All this can get very confusing and sometimes can get a little scary. One of two things are going to happen. We're going to die or Christ is going to return. The result's the same. We face judgment of Jesus Christ. Now, for those of us in Christ, it's the greatest day of our lives. It's the start of an eternal existence with the triune God. Think of your best moment of your life the best moment of your life. And then multiply it by a million times. And that's what every moment of our eternal existence will be. Paul says it well in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Christ died and rose again, even so, through Christ, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will ascend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will be raised first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I, I got absolutely no idea 
when Christ is going to return, and I have absolutely no idea when my last day on this earth is. But the Bible consistently teaches that I should live my life as if I'm ready for those, one of those two moments to happen at any time. And if I'm in Jesus Christ, I can look forward to that day. I have an inheritance in heaven that has been gained by the salvation work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross for me that I can look forward to. I need not fear death. I need not fear the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, I, I long for that day. I mean, part of me says, come now, dear Jesus. Part of me says, wait until everyone has come to know you. And we live between that tension, but we do not fear that day. Now, if you do not know Jesus Christ, if you've not repented and turned to him, if you're not living him, if he is not the basis of your life, if he's not the Lord and the salvation of your life, then yes, take that seriously. And correct that today. Not next week, not tomorrow, today. Introduce yourself to Jesus Christ. Find somebody that can help you. Get serious about being a follower of his. And then on that day, it truly will be the greatest moment of your life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we acknowledge that you have clearly shown us and taught us that your son will return. And his return will cause a series of events to take place, one of which is the final resurrection and the final judgment. But Lord, you've already taken care of that for us. Not in kind of a universal everybody gets in way, but for those who are willing to turn toward your son, Jesus Christ, and acknowledge him. You've turned that into the greatest day that can be. Lord, I just pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus Christ, that have not turned their lives over to him, that you just speak to them right now. And for anyone that's, that's concerned about death or anyone that's concerned about Jesus' return, that you just open their eyes and hearts to the truth of what a glorious day that will be. And in all this, Lord, we praise you and worship you because of what you've done through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, through his life, death, and resurrection. It's in his name we pray. Amen.